0: So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're continuing a series in the Gospel of Mark. As you're turning, uh, I want to say two things. First of all, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take the one in the pew rack in front of you. It's a Christian standard Bible that's a translation of the New Testament that uh, we think is just a good, solid translation for people who are new to scripture or learning scripture, and maybe you've got a, a translation that uh, you are struggling to read, please feel free to take one of those uh, in the Bible, in the p rack in front of you, and imagine that you could double down today if you wanted to and see the Gideons on the way out and get an ESV, which is also a translation we recommend uh, on your way out the door. So, um, but just don't leave here without a copy of God's word, okay? We want you to have that. And the second thing I wanted to say is a word of thank you to our sister church, Potomac Heights Baptist Church. And the pastor there, Brian Sandifer, who very faithfully uh, makes it a point to pray for other churches. And uh, their church wants us to know that today they are praying by name for Leonardtown Baptist Church and for me as I share God's word with you. I know that I couldn't do what I do without your prayers. And what an encouragement it is uh, from this brother uh, to share that their church is praying for us as well. It it may be of note to you that the Aaron's, uh, who are members here, Zach and Megan, um, I think are attending at Potomac Heights Baptist. As they've moved further north and saddened us, they're a little bit further away from us on a regular basis. Um, They're at a great sister church. And so um, thank you to Brian and uh, Potomac Heights Baptist for that. Let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're in Mark chapter 10 and beginning in verse 32, and we'll read through verse 45. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Praise God for his word for us this morning. Thank you for standing. Would you please be seated? I believe I forgot to dismiss the children for junior church. So children, you are dismissed. On a day like today, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, this text is so fitting, isn't it? So appropriate. And not just for the obvious part. In verse 45, where we read that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, we'll get to that. But even here at the outset, in verses 32 through 34, we have yet the third prediction in Mark's gospel, where Jesus predicts his passion, that is, his death on the cross for sinners, we saw in verse 33, Jesus predicted he would be handed over to the Gentiles. That is, the chief priests and the scribes, they would, in, they would uh, condemn him, but they would hand him over to the Gentiles. And that's, of course, exactly what happened as the gospels recorded. The Jews couldn't actually enforce capital punishment. They couldn't be the ones to crucify Jesus. They wanted him dead, though. And so they would have to hand him over to the lawless ones, to the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles would crucify him, and not without first mocking him, spitting on our Lord, and flogging him. And there is no doubt from our text, Jesus knew where he was going. He was going to Jerusalem, to the suffering and the torture that awaited him. And to me, that's what makes verse 32 so amazing. It's quite an astounding piece of literary writing on the face of it. Mark in verse 32 records for us that Jesus was not to be deterred from his mission. He was not to be deterred from his mission, and it's given to us in this sort of word picture. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, and in spite of knowing what was coming in Jerusalem, we see in verse 32 Jesus' determination. And his purpose. They were on the road, we read, going up to Jerusalem. Literally going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Do you you see it in your mind's eye? Jesus is not the one in the back afraid. He's out in front, leading the way up the hill. With his face set towards Jerusalem. And those who followed him were afraid. The disciples, we read, were astonished. And those following him were afraid. And taking the 12th side, he told them what was going to happen. This graphic depiction of the mood, the various characters in the narrative. You have Jesus with his face like a flint set towards Jerusalem, a laser focus with purpose. And the followers behind are a little nervous about what's to come because they are hearing him say these things. And they're seeing him walk headlong. And what is going to be a cauldron. Potential for this to all go south. And they know it. But Jesus is determined. He has a resolve to be the suffering servant. That has been predicted long ago by the prophet Isaiah. We read in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 7. The Lord God helps me. This is the servant speaking. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Hardened, resolute, determined. Jesus would not be deterred from his mission. Luke's gospel tells us Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He has a purpose and a mission, and he would not be deterred. But perhaps the reason why Jesus was so determined was that he knew that he was not to be glorified until he suffered and died. So he wouldn't be deterred from his mission to die because he knew he was not to be glorified until he had suffered and died at Calvary. The second half of one of my favorite portions of Scripture, Hebrews twelve two, records for us that for the joy that lay before him, that is Jesus, he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured it because there was something set before him, the joy set before him. He endured the pain and suffering of Calvary. Notice at the end of that verse, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, Jesus is seated on a throne even now. James and John got it right. Jesus would rule. And he would be glorified. But they didn't understand that his glorification would be after his suffering and death. Christ is trying to tell them. But they're a little bit more preoccupied with positions of power and authority, aren't they? They're more preoccupied with their own agenda. They ask Jesus, Jesus, will you do whatever we ask of you? This reminded me of, um, you know, the phrase, can you do me a favor? Like, that's what immediately came to my mind. Like, when I'm going to bed at night, let's say I get my cup of water and I'm laying down, I get all cozy under the covers and the dog is laying her head across my feet. And then I remember, I just got my braces off. And you know what you have to do when you have your braces off? You have to wear a retainer at night. And I think to myself, my goodness. Um... I don't lead off with, Christina, will you go get me my retainer? (laughs) I lead off with, honey, dear, lovely. would you mind doing me a favor? Would you please help? And of course, I think my wife is reading Mark chapter 10 before she comes to bed. Because she answers with a very Christ-like reply. What exactly do you want me to do? (laughs) She wants to know before she commits. Notice before committing, she wants to kind of check it out. Thankfully, I wasn't asking for the kind of favor the disciples were looking for. And yes, my sweet wife did bring me my retainers. But the disciples' request, on the other hand, well, let's read. Let's look at that again in verse 37. They answered him, "'Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory.'" And Jesus said to them, "'You don't know what you're asking.'" Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You see, Jesus is fully aware that he is not going to enter his glory until he drinks the cup of suffering and is baptized in the overwhelming floods of death. We know this language is metaphorical. Uh, The cup, the baptism, it's made plain if you compare it, contrast it with Mark 14 and verse 36, remember Jesus in the garden as he's praying, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Take this cup of suffering away. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will. Jesus understood that Calvary was the path to his glorification. And suffering and dying to self is also a path that his disciples. Must take as well. Christ had made that clear. We've been studying this, the cost of discipleship. If you've been with us the last several weeks, it's been costly, it's been tough. And Jesus made it clear what it costs to follow Him. We must take up our cross, He says. And J.C. Ryle writes about this text. He warns us wisely. He says, There are few true Christians. Who don't resemble James and John when they first begin in their service to Jesus Christ. We are apt far more to expect from the present enjoyment. We expect enjoyment in our faith and religion more than the gospel might even warrant us to expect. We are apt, he writes, to forget the cross. We are apt to forget tribulation and think only about the crown we form an incorrect estimate of our own patience, don't we? Our own power to endure. We misjudge our own ability to stand against temptations and trials. And the result of all of it is, this is a nice phrase, he says, we often buy wisdom dearly. It costs us to get wisdom in our faith. And we get it by bitter experience after many disappointments and not a few falls. That's not a good place for an amen. I can feel it in the room. How about an O oh me? <laughs> Have you gotten that kind of wisdom through experience? He says and continues, like James and John, we are right to covet the best gifts and telling Christ all of our desires. Like them, we are right in believing Jesus is the king of kings and will one day reign upon the earth. But let us not like them forget that there is a cross to be borne by every Christian. And as Acts says, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. Let's not be too rose colored in our glasses as we consider the Christian faith. Jesus says, oh, you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. You will suffer. You will take up a cross. Christians don't neglect that there is a cross and a crown. We know where we're going. Praise God for the hope of what we have in Christ. But it won't be without trials and tribulations. So Jesus tells James and John, you will drink this cup. You will be baptized. And of course they were. But we read in verse 40, he made no promises regarding the right and the left thing with the sons of thunder. He can't give that out. It's been ordained. It's been prepared. It's not his to give. But then notice that the other 10 catch on, don't they? And they're furious. We read in verse 41, when the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And so Jesus takes the 12 aside again. And he makes it crystal clear that disciples of his are not to be like Worldly rulers. Disciples of Jesus are not to be like the worldly rulers. It's a little ironic, isn't it, that these guys are still squabbling. I mean, this is chapters and chapters later. They're still squabbling over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. How they would rank in positions of power and authority in the kingdom of God. And they're becoming the very thing they hate the most in the Romans. The Gentiles lord it over us. They have power that can squash us and crush us. And we want to we take them over, and then I want to have the power. We become the things we hate oftentimes. Just as an aside... I'm seeing this happen with Christians who get off mission. What do I mean by that? They've forgotten the reason why we're here is to go and make disciples, to share the gospel with others, to encourage one another as long as there is today, and to be here and to gather and to worship. When we get off mission, we get off focus on what we're supposed to become. We become more and more like the things that we rail against the most. Jesus reminds The disciples, that the Gentiles are really good at making sure you know who is in charge. Power tends to corrupt people. And absolute power, as the saying goes, can corrupt absolutely. We've seen this. We know this in our own experience, in our own lives. Jesus says, Not so among you. Brothers and sisters, let's not look outside. Let's not think of everyone else that could become tyrannical with their own power. What about you? Jesus says in verse 43, My disciples are not to be like worldly rulers. It is not so among you. That's worth an underline. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. The kingdom of God has a radically different understanding of greatness and what the powerful are supposed to do with that power. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you will be a servant. And if you want to be first, you'll become a slave. A slave to all. Serve. Seek, study, serve, share. There's a reason we emphasize these types of things around here. Seek, study, serve, share. It's a part, it's a critical part of our discipleship. And it's important that disciples of Jesus understand that we are to serve others. This Saturday, we're going to have a a training session here at the church. We're calling it Refresh. Its purpose is to train those who serve and to show our appreciation to the many people who regularly serve around here. When Pastor Allen and I were in the planning stages of this uh, event on Saturday, we were putting together a spreadsheet of a list of the people that serve on a regular basis, particularly our Sunday morning teams and variety of ways that people serve the Lord here on Sundays. And there were right at 100 people. Now, they're not all serving the same day, but in a rotation of maybe in a month, We have 100 people that serve very faithfully in some important way here at the church. Now, I've been very careful as we've led up to this event with my language about service and servants, because I know if I ever tell you thank you for volunteering, Brother John Fields right up there will throw a tomato from the sound booth. Now, let me explain. For those of you who don't know John Fields, he was an associate pastor here at Leonardtown years ago. And I guess about a decade or more, he's been a senior pastor at a church in Utah. Well, he's back home here in St. Mary's County serving as you would expect him to. But it was in a service role, I think substituting for uh, Wharton Osborne uh, Adult Bible Fellowship that he was teaching one Sunday. And he spoke up about the importance that we don't see ourselves as volunteers. We are not merely volunteers for Jesus. We are called to service. And it's a privilege that we have to serve the Lord. So, if I let that volunteer word slip, I know Brother John will help me out and correct me. But as I move on to the fourth point today, I want to say something I know Brother John will agree with, but at first glance, you might think he wouldn't. Okay, you ready for that? That sounds a little controversial, right? Are you sitting down? Jesus did not come to be served. Jesus did not come to be served. But to serve. You were actually standing up when I read that the first time. If you missed it, it's in verse 45. I, I know I'm not on the shaky branch because I'm quoting scripture right here. Jesus says, I did not come to be served. There it is. What does that mean? Okay, if we're serving him, what are we doing? What, are we doing it wrong? Yeah, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Verse 45 makes it very plain. And he says, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, I know Brother John knows exactly where I'm going with this because all in the same breath as he was teaching that class, he made sure that class understood we are not volunteers, we're servants. But then he said also, but it's not as though God needs our help. (laughs) It's not like God needs our help to serve him. It's a privilege. He allows us to serve and he enables us to do it. Do you see it? He he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And without him, we couldn't do any of it. It's a privilege. Just to support this idea that God doesn't need our help, think of Acts chapter 17 and verse 25. Paul says, neither is God served by human hands. He can't be served by human hands. As though God needs anything, since he himself gives Everyone, life and breath and all things. There it is. You cannot serve God in that way. He gives us literally the life and the breath in our lungs. I was walking by a children's class this morning with people serving. And the song was, every move I make, I make in you. You make me move, Jesus. Every breath I take, I breathe in you. Listen, before we get too excited about what we can do for God, let's remember that every breath we have comes from him. We belong to God, body and soul, life and death. So hear me clearly. Apart from Jesus serving us, we would never be able to walk the narrow and difficult road that leads to eternal life. Nor could we ever... Serve others sacrificially in the way that God demands. In other words, if Jesus does not serve you, you have no part in his kingdom. Like he says to Peter in John 13. Do you remember the foot washing? Jesus is washing. He's over here with James's stinky feet and he kind of scrubs them off. And he gets to John and he washes them a little bit. And then he gets to Peter and Peter says, nope, I won't let you do this. This is the job of a slave. And what did Jesus say? He said, if I don't wash you, then you have no part in the kingdom. This is a profound thought. It caught me a little bit as I was studying. Jesus must be your servant. Wow. In what way? Well, we are all indebted to God. So I want to parse this out a little bit because some of your heads are spinning. I've got a few engineers in the crowd and you're like, wait. We're serving him, but we're not serving him. So let's try and understand what we mean by this so we're all crystal clear. There's two ways you could think about being a servant, a servant of Jesus. Paul himself says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus. He begins many of his letters saying, I was wearing the shirt yesterday. My son has the same shirt. Grandfather calls on the phone on FaceTime. What does that mean? It means a slave of Christ. Okay, so what is it, Jason? Okay, well, here's the sense. You can be a servant. Paul calls himself a servant. Jesus said a servant isn't greater than his master. He understood there is a way, a sense, in which Jesus has the right, of course, to tell us what to do, the authority to tell us how to live. And so we are his servants and his slaves, but not in the sense that he needs our help. If you get the idea that he needs our help with his mission and his purposes in the world, you can't serve him like that. He must, in fact, serve us. But not like we tell him what to do, right? It's not like he's our servant. It's not like a genie in the bottle and you say, well, God, will you do whatever I ask of you? You see this question there? You see the way it's flipped around? Jesus says, I, I have to serve you, but I'm not the genie in the bottle that grants you three wishes. He has to serve us as regards to, and in the sense that he gives his divine resources to help and strengthen us and guide us and support us and provide for our needs. And our greatest need, he makes crystal clear at the end of verse 45, apart from the service of Christ for us, we are indebted to God and slaves to sin our greatest need was met at Calvary. We are indebted to God and slaves to sin. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Language that is used here is Jesus' own self-understanding of his fulfillment of the role of the suffering servant. You remember in the synagogue in Nazareth and Jesus Opens up the scroll, and he's reading in Isaiah, and he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. It is written about me in the scroll. And he rolls it up, and he says, It's fulfilled in your hearing. He came to fulfill what was written about him. So the Old Testament is helpful as it informs our understanding of the new. There is a, a way, a path, and that path included the path of the suffering servant in Isaiah, chapter 53. And so in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, we read about this suffering servant. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him, the servant, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. the joy set before him. I wonder if that's what he was seeing and satisfied in, in the anguish of his soul. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted. Many give his life as a ransom. He's tying you there. He's pointing you there. Make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Give his life as a ransom for many cross, iniquities, our sins. Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, crucified between criminals. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, even you and me. Jesus saw himself as the suffering servant of Isaiah and the offering for our guilt and sin he was the righteous servant of Yahweh who bore our sins and iniquities and made intercession for us friends jesus came to serve you in this way he came to free you from the debt of sin that you owe to god and your bondage to iniquity he paid that debt With his lifeblood, so you and I could be free. It cost him his life. And without his ransoming you, there's no way you can serve others. Not the way he calls us to serve them. How can somebody who's dead in their sin, indebted to God, be of any true service to him? But when we, by humble faith, receive his service to us. Let him wash our feet in this way. Let him die for us because we know we couldn't do it without him. We are strengthened, enabled to serve others. One pastor has summarized the Christian life like this. He says, quote, the Christian life is a life of service in the strength that Jesus provides As our servant. That's pretty good. The the Christian life is a life of service in the strength that Jesus provides as our servant. That's a pretty good summary of our text today. It's also pretty much what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4. Maybe your mind was going there as well. If anyone speaks, let him speak as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength that God provides. So that, that's that's clue, there's a reason for this. Why is, why is it like this? Why must it be like this? So that God may be glorified. Not us. God gets the glory through Jesus in everything. And just in case you missed that, to him be glory. And power forever and ever. One person has the power, and that's the king of kings and lord of lords. And we serve in the strength he provides so that he receives the honor and the glory for everything we do in his name. The glory and power belong to Christ. He is first and always will be preeminent lord of the eternal kingdom. Not because, like the Gentiles, he crushed and subdued us with his mighty arm, but rather Because he was bruised and crushed for our transgressions as our humble servant. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, a cross he went to willingly, purposefully, determined. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, not James and John, not Jason, not you. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father will you pray with me heavenly father thank you for your love for us in sending your son Thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to come and do the will of the Father. And thank you, Spirit, who now lives in all who have put their faith and trust in you. For the enabling power you give, the strengthening you provide, the help that Jesus promised he would give us, that we could fulfill your mission Heavenly Father, I pray that across this room your Holy Spirit would convict of sin or maybe somebody here today just coming to that realization that they have transgressed your will, your commands, your law and that they need salvation, that they're in in debt, Lord, that they're held captive. I pray that you would release the captives, that you would ransom the many. Father, we are all transgressors here today. We thank you for the intercession that you've made for us, the offering of guilt you paid for us at the cross. And Lord, I pray that someone here would be saved from their sin. And rescued from their indebtedness to you. Lord, I thank you for the service that you allow us and enable us to do. Father, thank you for the privilege of caring for others, giving to others. Lord, would you reorient our thinking so that we start going down and down and down? in our mindset to humble ourselves and be the slave and servant of all. Least of which here in our fellowship, Lord, would we serve one another sacrificially. Lord, your word tells us that you gave your life as this ransom for many while we were still sinners. God, there are people in our church who sometimes it's hard to serve, They don't want us to serve, or they're just different or challenging. But God, where were we? Ruined, wretched, sinners, enemies. And you gave your life for us. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, teach us, help us to have that mindset of service that can only come when we are served by you and what Jesus did for us at Calvary. I pray this in his name. Amen.